Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Sociology. This is your hostess, Annie Sepukaya, and today we are talking to Phil Zuckerman. Phil Zuckerman is a professor of sociology at Pitzer College in Claremont, California, where he teaches classes on secularism in Scandinavian society. He has authored and co-authored several books, including Being Secular, What We Know About the Non-Religious, Oxford University Press, coming out in 2013. Faith No More, Why People Reject Religion, Oxford University Press, 2011. Today, however, we are talking to him about his book, Society Without God, What the Least Religious Nations Can Tell Us About Contentment, New York University Press, 2008. This book has been translated into Korean and Danish. And essentially, it counters the claim of many conservative Christians and other theists that a belief in God is necessary for a stable, healthy society. Having lived in Scandinavia and having conducted in-depth interviews with nearly 150 Swedes and Danes, Zuckerman discovered that Scandinavian societies are not only surviving without God, but thriving. Good morning, Phil. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, We are talking about your book, Society Without God, What the Least Religious Nations Can Tell Us About Contentment. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book? Yeah, sure. I was sitting in traffic one day in Los Angeles, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and there were all these bumper stickers in front of me proclaiming, like, you know, love Jesus and love God and God and country and blah, blah, blah. And I was listening to the radio, and uh, George W. Bush had just won his second term, his re-election. Well, actually, he didn't win the first term. He lost by half a million votes. So let's say he he won his first term, which is really our second term of having him as president. And I was listening to the commentary about this. So George W. Bush had just been re-elected, his very second term. uh, And they were trying to understand, you know, why did he beat John Kerry? And one of the commentators was saying, well, you know, there were a lot of values voters values voters, and they were saying that several states that for that election had put anti-gay marriage ballot measures on their, on the, on the, on the ballot that year, and maybe some anti-abortion stuff, I think it was primarily anti-gay stuff, and they were, this commentator was interpreting that as one of the reasons that it got people to the polls, because people are so anti-gay marriage, that it got them to the polls for that issue, and then while they were there, they pushed the button for George W. Bush. And, and that to them was having values, being anti-gay marriage. And I was like, what, where, why is it in this country that people that are anti-gay marriage, anti-environmental protection, anti-reproductive uh, rights have values, and the rest of us, what are we, are we valueless? Are we immoral? Like, because we want to stop global warming? Because we believe women should have a right to choose? Because we believe a person can marry whoever they want if they're a consenting adult? Like, that we don't have values? So that, that was the kernel. And it got me just this feeling about America 
where so many Americans are so religious, and they associate religion with lots of good things, which there are a lot of good things with religion. Religion provides community, rituals, hope, inspiration, comfort. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think religion's all bad or all good. But what I have found is a lot of Americans think secularity is all bad. They associate an absence of belief in God with immorality, a uh, lack of ethics, a lack of direction. And there's a widespread notion, I think, for a lot of Americans, from Newt Gingrich on down, from Rick Santorum on down, that, that God has to be the center of our lives. And if God isn't, you know, if we somehow stop loving God, stop worshiping God, stop obeying God, stop believing in God, well, all hell will break loose, because then how could we ever have any morals or values or a good society or a good community? It would all crumble. And so there I was in the on my uh, in my car looking at America, the traffic, the smog, the I love Jesus bumper stickers, George W. Bush just getting reelected, and I thought, you know, I know as a sociologist that there is no correlation between strong religiosity and good societies. In fact, if anything, if there is a correlation, it's in the opposite direction. Again, it's just a correlation, but the correlation shows that actually, among the least religious societies on Earth, they tend to be doing the best. And I wanted Americans to know that. Um, now, and I'll just end here. Simultaneously, I had been asked to write a chapter for Cambridge, the Cambridge Companion to Atheism. was being published uh, by Cambridge University Press, edited by Michael Martin, and they asked me to write a chapter on, you know, how many atheists are there in the world by country, what, what, rate, what are the rates of atheism out there, are they going up, are they going down, what countries have the most atheists, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And I, and I saw that Scandinavia had among the highest rates of secularity, um, a lot of agnostics in Scandinavia, a lot of atheists, although they don't call themselves atheists, they just they don't like that title, it's too negative, too condemning, but they are atheists nonetheless. Um, they have the lowest rates of church attendance, lowest rates of belief in, you know, the miracles of Jesus or the Bible or life after death, etc. And I know they also are extremely, extremely uh, uh, value-laden societies or positive value-laden societies. They're very humanitarian, very civil, excellent democracies, women's rights, elder care, child care, care for the disabled, um, environmental protections. I mean, everything you, that I believe in is, 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 is most successfully enacted in Scandinavia. So I thought, okay, let's go to the least religious societies in the Western world and see how they're faring and write a report and, and blast that back to America and say, look, you, it's, it is possible to have a society that's not so religious and is doing quite well. Wow, okay. Um, you said that one, you, so you lived in Scandinavia for a certain period of time, correct? Yeah, so what I did was I, I took my sabbatical for 14 months and lived with my family in Denmark's largest city called Aarhus. And uh, I interviewed as many Danes and Swedes as I could find. Uh, I had been there before. I'd been to Sweden a couple times on short stints. I'd been to Denmark on short stints, but I finally lived there for 14 months. Uh, after writing Society Without God, I went back and lived there for another year. So I've lived there for over two years now. Uh, but yeah, for that book, I did 14 months of, well, participant observation doesn't really capture it. I just lived there for 14 months. I had my kids in school. We had a child born there, so I got to experience the healthcare system, the educational system. Uh, I worked there, I got, I had colleagues, uh, and I just interviewed as many people from as many walks of life as I could about their own perspectives, their own worldviews, etc. And what did you see as being the biggest difference between uh, the Danes' relationship to religion and Americans' relationship to religion? 
The biggest difference, I would say, is that in Denmark, religion is a quiet, marginal thing in life. It's there. You know about it. But Danes don't care too much about it. They don't think too much about it. They certainly don't talk too much about it, privately or publicly. In the United States, America is out there. It's on people's bumper stickers. It's on the radio. It's on the billboards. It's on the television. Our politicians don't stop talking about their praying and love for God. Our governors and mayors hold prayer rallies to solve problems. Um, our presidential candidates have to prove their spiritual mettle as they uh, go for office. People will constantly ask you what church you go to. If you move into a new town, that'll be the first question you get. Um, kids talk about religion on the schoolyard. Um, uh, religion is in sporting events. You know, our sports heroes thank Jesus when they score touchdowns. I mean, religion's just part of our culture. It's, it's, it's public, it's personal, it's private, it's everywhere. Whereas in Denmark, it's just not, it's marginal, it's just not a living reality in most people's lives. And they would be horrified. I mean, you just don't ask people what church, you don't ask them about their religious faith, you don't ask them, it's nobody's business. And it's so much nobody's business that it's actually just not really that much uh, on anybody's really agenda or to-do list. That, that's the biggest difference. I'd say the second big difference is, is what it means to be a Christian. If you ask most Scandinavians, are you Christian, they'll say, yeah. Um, but when you ask them what they mean by that, that's where the differences emerge. When you say, well, what does it mean to be a Christian, they'll say, well, that's just what we are. We're, we're Lutherans. That's what Danes are. That's what Swedes are. That's what Norwegians are. We're, it's part of our culture. It's part of our history. It's part of our heritage. And then if you ask them, well, what does it really mean, though, in terms of beliefs, they will emphasize, oh, it means, you know, we believe in being a good person. We believe in helping out the disadvantaged. We believe in the golden rule. We believe in taking care of the sick, the orphan, the unwell. We're against racism. You know, the real kind of ethic that, you know, what Jesus, a lot of what Jesus taught. Now, if you ask an American, are you Christian? They'll either say yes or no. And if they say yes, it has, and if you say, what does that mean? It has to do with specific theological beliefs. It believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died for my sins. I believe that Jesus is my personal Savior. I believe that Jesus came to save the world. He's the Messiah. I mean, it's, it's very theological. It's not to say there aren't some Christians in America. You know, there's a lot of liberal, mainline Protestants who agree with the Scandinavian version. But that's not, main, that's not the, the main default. You know, when I ask most Americans, are you Christian? They say yes. Usually they mean it has to do with supernatural beliefs about Jesus and what he does for them and, how, and his place in the cosmos, whereas Scandinavians, Christianity does, is more of a cultural thing, a heritage thing, and, and not a supernatural beliefs thing. And how do you think that Scandinavia came to be the way it is? Like, why did this sort of indifference to religion, kind of cultural Christianity, but not um, obsessively, you know, supernatural Christianity, how did that occur? Next question. No. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> you know, this is where I bump up against the limits of sociology. Mm -hmm. There's going to be three main ways to answer that question. There's going to be sociological factors, but probably more important than that are going to be historical factors, and maybe even more important than that are going to be psychological components. Now, I can't say which is more significant. They probably all three impact each other, affect each other, and, and the outcome is contemporary Scandinavia, which is so secular. As a sociologist, I can talk about the, the sociological factors. Okay, number one, uh, Scandinavia has what Rodney Stark would call a lazy monopoly religion. And what he means by that is 
Most Scandinavians are Lutheran. They are members of the National Lutheran Church, and by national we mean like tax-subsidized, state-supported. So you have a, a situation where there's kind of one major religion, it's supported by the state, and there's not a lot of competition. There's some, 2%, 3%, but not much. What this means is that the, the Lutheran religion doesn't have to compete for customers, quote-unquote. It's not, it's not um, fighting for adherence because it's the biggest show in town, the main show in town. And even if it doesn't get adherence, who cares? So if five people show up for Sunday morning services, the pe- preacher still gets his pay from the state. He's a state employee. So there's not, he, it's not a sink or swim situation where, you know, hey, if he doesn't get people to come to the church, he can't afford the electric bill. The electric bill gets paid by the state. Um, if he doesn't get people to come to church, that doesn't mean he doesn't get a vacation. He gets an, a vacation because he's a member of the pastor's union, and they negotiate with the state for a vacation. You know what I'm saying? So they, the, the church isn't, doesn't have to be aggressive in marketing itself, which means it's the same old prayers, the same old hymns, the same old structure, and it's not exciting and new and engaging and interesting, so people aren't motivated. That's one size sociological possibility. The other biggie, and perhaps maybe more important, is that the Scandinavian societies have developed the most advanced and successful welfare state in the history of the industrial world. So what does that mean? High, heavy, progressive taxation. They have the highest taxes in the world, and those taxes immediately go to pay for everything that everybody needs. It pays for education all the way up through med school, graduate school, law school. That's all free. It, it subsidizes child care, elder care, virtually free. It subsidizes, uh, you know, if you, get un- if you get laid off, you know, your unemployment benefits, retraining. It's all free. Uh, you need uh, uh, orphanage care, all free. So they have the safety net and the security net of an extremely aggressive welfare state, which means that life is secure for Scandinavians. They can lose their job. They can get cancer. They will get the care and comfort they need. Um, and so life is not precarious. Life is not dangerous. It's peaceful. It's secure. Of course, there are some problems. It's not perfect, but it's one of the most, these are one of the most secure societies ever created in the history of the world. Um, and that means the comfort and need for religion is diminished. Um, if you have your basic essentials taken care of, food, shelter, medicine, um, you are not going to obsess about these existential worries as much. And so I think, you know, they have this advanced, uh, a welfare state, which diminishes the need for religion. You have a lazy monopoly, so there's not a lot of marketing of religion. And finally, uh, you have a lot of women working. Uh, Danish, uh, Swedish women work more in the paid labor force than any other uh, societies on earth. Women, of course, have always worked, and they've worked more than lazy men, but they haven't gotten paid for it. Uh, in Scandinavia, that's different. Women are in the paid labor force to agree uh, more than anywhere else. Uh, the vast majority of women have their children in state-run uh, child care facilities that are excellent, by the way. I've had two kids in them myself. They're uh, extremely, extremely wonderful places to raise children. But the point is, when women are working, we, we see a diminishment of religious involvement by women. And when women stop being religiously involved, men tend to follow suit and the kids as well. So in other words, you don't have that dynamic of the of, of the parents dragging kids to church or mom dragging the reluctant husband to church. You just have nobody's got time. On Sunday, they want to garden and relax and read the newspaper. So those are three sociological factors. Now, there's, of course, historical factors, the ways in which Christianity first came to Scandinavia, which is very different from the way it came, for example, to North America, uh, the type of religion that it was, the type of Christianity it was, the, the very specific components of Lutheranism and the, how they played out through the history and culture of Scandinavia over the centuries. And uh, 
on the development of secular attitudes, uh, 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 how workers' movements were protesting not only royalty and aristocracy, but the clergy as well. So there's historical factors. And then finally, I, I have to say, even though I'm a, I'm a sociologist, there is something to be said for neuropsychology. Uh, it may very well be that uh, Scandinavians are more skeptical by nature, uh, more uh, reluctant to believe in things they can't see, more pragmatic, more practical, more this-worldly, more rational, uh, less likely to follow what authority tells them or what preachers tell them. So there could be some internal components there as well. One of the really interesting things, the last thing that you said about the neuropsychological component, what do you think about this uh, theory after your experience, the theory that, you know, God is wired into our genes and that we all have this sort of propension for belief? Because that's an argument that you hear often um, from usually from theists who, you know, argue that, well, there has been no society without God before and it's part of our human makeup. What do you how do you feel about that? I think it's bullshit. Um, are we wired to believe things? Of course. Are we, are we neurologically wired to believe things that our parents tell us? Of course. Are we wired to believe in stories? We're what anything humans do, we're neurologically wired for. We're, we're wired to believe in the tooth theory, because a lot of humans believe in the tooth theory. We're neurologically wired to break dance, to make pottery, to read on the toilet, to tell funny jokes. I mean, you know, it's sort of a, Theological, I mean, anything humans exhibit, obviously, is a result of our neurological wiring, or else we wouldn't exhibit it. But the point of that, like, well, there's no society that, uh, uh, you know, doesn't have religion or faith or God, that, that's, of course, true. But you could, let, let's take the example of, um, I don't know, dance. Dance is in every society. There's no society that doesn't dance. Or have dancing. But that doesn't mean every member of that society equally dances to the same degree or likes dancing to the same degree. In fact, there's a belt, you know, there's a, a distribution. So in any society, okay, dance exists in the society. And there are some, but there are some who are like dancing fiends. And all they do is dance. And they love dance. And they're fulfilled by dance. And on the other end, there's people who kind of hate dance, feel uncomfortable dancing, feel embarrassed dancing, don't dance at all. And then everybody in the middle, right? And so you could say the same thing about um, singing. You know, every culture has singing. But again, some people are singing virtuosos. Some people can't sing at all. They're totally tone deaf. They can't even carry a tune. If you, if you held their children's heads over a bonfire, they couldn't carry a tune. And then everybody in the middle. So the same, is, the same with faith or religiosity or belief in God. Yes, every culture exhibits some type of religious religiosity or beliefs or supernatural beliefs. But there's a distribution. So in every society, there are some people that really believe in those things and people that totally reject those things, and a lot of people in the middle. So uh, I don't think we are hardwired to believe in God. I think some of us uh, have certain brains that make that belief easier. Some of us have certain brains that make that belief harder. And there's all these other intervening variables like who raised us. I mean, all you have to look at is social, parent socialization explains far more about belief than a, a brain gene. I mean, all you have to do is look at, you know, when, two, when, when, parent, when kids have two strong religious parents, the odds that that kid will be strong and religious are huge. When they have one parent who's religious and one who's not, the odds diminish significantly that that kid will be religious. And when you have two parents that are both secular, the odds that that kid will be religious are minuscule. It's just that, now, that could be, I guess, genetic inheritance or socialization or both, but it suggests that to just kind of reduce religious belief to, oh, well, it's part of the brain, it isn't really telling us much. You said there's a big difference between countries that lose their faith 
gradually, as seems to be the case with Scandinavia, and countries where atheism has been imposed upon them. Could you talk a little bit about that? You bet. You know, um, the biggest critique I get of my book is, uh, one of the biggest, is, well, wait a minute, what about China and the former Soviet Union and Albania, which was the first officially declared atheist society on Earth? I mean, these societies are hell on Earth, Zuckerman. What do you, North Korea, what do you mean? You know, we know that when societies without God are totalitarian regimes. What I would argue there is, first I'd say, you're right, those places suck. Atheism plus totalitarianism is awful. I agree. I don't defend Albania. I don't defend Stalin. I don't defend uh, Ho Chi Minh. I don't defend... Oh, actually, maybe he wasn't so bad. I don't know. If I meant Pol Pot. Um, I don't defend these fucking brutal, barbarian, atheist, not, not Nazi-like dictators. Not at all. But what I would say is, well, let's take a step back sociologically and differentiate between societies that have atheism imposed by a dictatorship you know, that says we're going to destroy churches, we're going to outlaw religion, you know, upon penalty of torture or death, which has been the case in many of these atheist regimes. And let's look at societies that haven't had any such process. People have simply stopped being religious organically over generations of their own volition. So no government has forced them to be secular. They've just become secular. We have far more many societies like that than these handful of atheist totalitarian regimes. From Scotland to Scandinavia to the Netherlands, to Japan, to uh, uh, even we're seeing secularization now in places like Argentina, or Israel. From the, Israel's actually becoming more religious now, but it started quite secular and was for many decades. Um, Azerbaijan. Uh, we can look at a lot of societies where, uh, still, the Baltic states, where religion just kind of has petered out. And what I would argue is that's a bit more interesting to me. I, I would rather look at societies where people organically give up faith than societies where faith is sort of, a, they, they attempt to strangle the faith out of people. Uh, I think those are going to be just two very different dynamics. And, and so if we compare democracies, so let's just keep, because we know all dictatorships suck. Christian dictatorships suck. There's been a shitload of Christian dictators uh, uh, all over, from Pinochet to uh, Idi Amin in Uganda. I mean, religious dictators create hellish societies too. So I think it's safe to say that whether it's a religious dictatorship or an atheist dictatorship, dictatorships stink. So let's just look at democracies. Ah, now among democracies, we can rank societies in terms of how faithful their populations are or how secular their populations are. And within democracies, we see that the more secular are doing the best and the most religious are doing the worst. And by the way, you can do the same thing by comparing the 10 most religious states and the 10 least religious states in America. You'll find the same correlations, and they're not favorable to Rick Santorum or Newt Gingrich. Uh, they're favorable to secular freaks like me. So speaking of politics, um, how does the secularism in Scandinavia affect its politics, or does it? There's a, you know, this is interesting. The First uh, Amendment to the Constitution says uh, 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 John, Thomas Jefferson interpreted the First Amendment of the Constitution as creating a, a wall of separation between church and state. Um, government shall not make any, what's the wording, shall not, uh, you know, establish religion nor prohibit the free exercise thereof. So you would think that in the United States, we would have this you know, huge separation between politics and religion. And of course, ironically, that's the opposite has happened. In Scandinavia, which actually has a state church, there actually is a huge wall of separation. Um, for Scandinavians, politics is this worldly. It's about solving problems in this world, in the here and now, through reason and experiment and policy and practicality and practice and success or failure and 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 
committee work. It's about like, all right, what do we need to do? But we have some hungry people here. Well, we've got some refugees. I mean, how do we solve these problems? Oh, there's a, maybe a war. What is our position? To them, any politician who would refer to God in solving these would be out of a job, would simply be out of a job. I mean, you just, in fact, there are these international surveys that ask people, you know, do you want politicians who are religious? Danes come in last place. They do not want their religious, their politicians religious, and they don't want their religious leaders involved in politics. Um, it's that simple. Do they think there's a place for religion? Sure. It's personal, it's private, and it's nobody's business, and it certainly doesn't belong in Parliament. So there's a big difference there. Um, so speaking of that, what do you think about Norway's recent decision to become a secular state? Oh, did Norway make that move? I thought I know Sweden did back in 2000. Did Norway do that too recently? Just recently, I think last week. I gotta check it out. <laughs> what do you think, how do you think that might affect? Do you think it will affect it at all? Do you think it's more like a yeah. consequence of, of secularism? Um, it's both. On the one hand, it shows that more and more Norwegians, as happened in Sweden in the year 2000, are recognizing, hey. We should not be in the business of subsidizing religion. It shouldn't be part of our tax structure. It's not the same thing as our educational system or our health care system. It's different, and a lot of us don't believe in it, and a lot of us don't use it, so why are we subsidizing it? But I th So on the one hand, it is a kind of, conclu uh, it is a kind of con a result of secularization. On the other hand, however, I do believe that if the Norwegian church now is on its own, and has to survive by getting participants, I think they're going to be uh, more aggressive in their marketing. I think they're going to uh, make themselves more contemporarily relevant. I think they're going to do things that may get people more interested in it. So in the end, it may actually increase church participation and religiosity. But we'll just have to wait and see 25, 50 years and see what happens. Great. Uh, to finish up, I was wondering if you could tell us, I know it's been a while since you've written a book, but could you tell us a little bit about Morton, um, who was a Dane who came to the States and uh, lived here for a while and then went back to Denmark and what your findings were with him. Because I found that to be a really fascinating story. Yeah, that was just one of those lucky things. I was like, you know, uh, you know, thank you, God. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you, Thor, I should say. Um, yeah, when I was in Denmark, I had a colleague. Her husband worked in a tech industry, and I was trying to interview whoever I could, whenever I could. Uh, and I was trying to get as many interviewees as I could, so I interviewed him. He was in his early 40s, I think, at the time, late 30s, early 40s, worked for a telecommunications tech company, and uh, actually considered himself a Christian, actually said he did perhaps believe in God. There had been times in his life where he thought he was really ill and had kind of turned to faith, um, and kind of, you know, okay, uh, didn't go to church all that much, most Danes don't, but was more, a little bit more on the religious side of things for a Dane. Just so happens, when I came back to California, his wife got a sabbatical also in California. So a few months after we were home, they came over to live in Santa Barbara, about an hour and a half away from us. And our kids were friends, and so we were so happy to see them. And he had never been in the States before, and he had a great leave, paternity leave, from work. So he had, you know, he was able to get away from his work for nine months, uh, and stay at home and help raise the kids. And he ended up volunteering at the preschool and at the elementary school. And he was just so happy to learn about America and get involved. And what happened? And this is Santa Barbara. This isn't even Alabama. This isn't Mississippi. This is Santa Barbara. I mean, this is one of the more liberal, progressive places on earth. And yet, 
first thing he's asked in the preschool by the other parents is, you know, what church do you go to? Do you believe in Jesus? Don't you read your Bible? And he was sort of stunned and taken aback, like, why are people asking me this? And I would see him, we would get together as families, maybe every couple months, go for a hike, get dinner, have a sleepover, and he was always wanting to share me his what he was experiencing in America. You know, we'd talk about fast food or what's on TV. And he happened to be here when, the, when it was the election for Obama, but Obama didn't have the nomination yet. It was still between him and Edwards and Hillary and a few others. And there was a whole show devoted just to the religious beliefs of a Democratic candidate. That was the show. It wasn't even a debate between Republicans or Democrats. or It was just, let's get these Democrats up here and have them tell how, how religious they were. And, and my friend was just stunned. He, he was watching TV saying, what? These people are going to be, one of these is possibly going to be the president of the most powerful nation on earth, and, he, and, the, and this person, be it, he or she has to explain their faith? He was appalled. He went to churches. He was appalled by what he saw. Went to many churches, actually, uh, many different denominations. And by the end of the stay, he said, Phil, i got to tell you, I, I've had a shift. And we went in the backyard. I turned on my tape recorder. I said, talk to me. I interviewed him for another hour. He said, you know, now that I see what it really means to be Christian, I'm not a Christian. I thought being a Christian in Denmark was kind of this nice thing that, you know, a mild whatever, yes, I believe. I've seen the face of American Christianity. And you know what? They're right. If you say you're a Christian, you need to believe in X, Y, and Z. Actually, the Danes are the ones that don't know what they're saying. When the Danes say they're Christian, they don't know what they really mean. The Americans do. The Americans read the Bible. They showed me the Bible. And I don't believe any of it. So why am I calling myself a Christian? And more so, I am so horrified by the extent of Christianity in your political system. And I'm going to go back to the Denmark and warn them and say, hey, you don't know what's going on in America. Now, a follow-up to that. So he went from being kind of a mild Christian to now he's a confirmed atheist. I just was in Denmark. Uh, when was I there last? About, I don't know, last six months ago. We went out for a beer. He said, I've quit the church, the National Lutheran Church. You have to fill out a piece of paper. And he goes, I'm more atheist than ever, and you just need to know that, that, you know, my experience in America disabused me of religion. It was really fascinating. That's a really, really interesting story. Um, Phil, thank you so much for being with us today. You bet. You have been listening to an interview with Phil Zuckerman author of Society Without God, What the Least Religious Nations Can Tell Us About Contentment. I'm your hostess, Annie Sepulkaya. Thank you for listening.